there's different types of religious faith. But I think the, the ones that appeal to me are the ones that are most attuned to the broken places in people, the desires for something beyond, the possibilities for communion, the, the, the limitations of human will and the human intellect, that understand that the world is not a tameable place, that human beings are not tameable or controllable. This is Dominic Preziosi. That was Marine Corps veteran and award-winning author Phil Cly speaking about his new book, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless War, a collection of essays, journalism, and other nonfiction written during the past 10 years. A frequent contributor to Commonweal and a regular guest on our podcast, Phil joined senior editor Matt Boudway for a wide-ranging conversation on a number of topics including trauma and reintegration of returning soldiers and the deceptive political rhetoric surrounding the incidents of modern warfare. Their discussion is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Phil, thank you for being with us today on the Commonweal Podcast. Thanks so much. At the end of an essay in your new book, uh, an essay titled The Good War, you write, I'm not anti-war. I served in a war, and I served proudly. But just or not, necessary or not, war is the industrial-scale slaughter of other humans, which is perhaps why historical memory of war is so often at odds with the lived experience. I don't believe in any greatest generation. I believe in great events. They sweep ordinary people up, expose them to extremes of human behavior, and unimaginable tests of integrity and courage, and then deposit them back on the home front, which is when we start telling ourselves stories about what it all meant. Now, reading the collection, one thing that, that I think will strike most readers, certainly it struck me, is that the stories you told yourself about what you were doing in Iraq and why you were doing it changed over time. Could you say something about that? I was always into history and I was always into literature as a kid. And the books that I was reading, especially sort of as a teenager in the 90s, were telling me very different things depending on the form. So in the popular history books about World War II at the time, you had books like Stephen Ambrose's Citizen Soldiers and, and you had movies like Saving Private Ryan and so on that were telling this very heroic story of America's role in World War II and primarily the men who served in that war. And then if you were reading classic war literature, even about the same war, books like Catch-22 or Grafty's Rainbow, you're getting a very different message about what war is, what the experience of it is like, the sort of insanity and absurdity and cruelty of it. And I've had had those two together in my head, right? And then there were the debates about the Iraq war, and there were sort of the neoconservative arguments for the war. There was also the kind of like humanitarian argument of the war, where Saddam Hussein was a dictator who was brutalizing his own people, we're going to bring democracy, and so on. And then, of course, when I joined, I didn't join at the beginning. Right. I took my oath of office in 2005. So by that point, I knew there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It was very obvious that the initial phases of the 
occupation had been mishandled sort of grievously, right? And so then the kind of question was, all right, what are we doing now? And what is my role in it? And, and I went in during the surge, which is again, this sort of huge plus up of troops. And at the same time, there was a kind of shift, I think that was happening in terms of how people thought of veterans. So when I joined the Marine Corps, a lot of times the most often sort of responses that I would get, you know, I get sort of anti-war type responses, but you'd often get like, oh, that's so badass kind of thing. And then after I came back, I think thinking about post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma had really intensely increased in the culture. And so you'd more often get this sort of narrative that you must be broken, right? I was at a bar once and this guy told me, all Iraq vets are going to snap after 10 years. And you know, I'd been back three at that point. So I had seven years left. <laughs> I should make them good ones. In a weird way, like part of the, the homecoming process, and you've been part of something that's, that's deeply important, that feels deeply morally important, that you're still navigating, not just in terms of your own memories, but in terms of what's continuing to happen because these are ongoing wars. People that I knew were continuing to serve. Sometimes I'd find out that somebody was shot or blown up an IED strike or somebody I knew had been killed. And events on the ground are sort of changing your understanding of what happened, right? So after the seeming success of the surge, you have a whole series of events that lead to the rise of ISIS, right? And so navigating all of those narratives and, and trying to figure out how to make sense of what you've been through, what to make of it now, and how to sort of engage with other people about the war that you were a part of that, that, that sort of easily slits on, slots into all these different narratives that are under in conflict, right? And, and under dispute. I mean, that's just a sort of natural part of the homecoming process. And there's just this mass of narratives about what being a veteran means as an individual, what it means for us as a nation, how it fits in morally, politically, spiritually, and sort of religious questions and wars, one of the things that I'm concerned with. All of those are in play. Well, maybe we could dive right in with the religious questions. Veterans who lose their faith because of horrible things they see in war, that's a kind of cliche, but it's also an all-too-common reality. But your experience, as you describe it, your experience of briefly losing faith was very different. It had to do not with the Odyssey, but with something almost like the opposite, a sense of moral complacency about the war and your role in it after you first returned and how that complacency was shaken up by subsequent events there, but also your own experiences here. Could you say something about that? Yeah, because when I went into Ambar province in 2007, it was an extremely violent place. I wasn't doing anything particularly dangerous, but you know, the first month there was a suicide truck bombing outside our main gate, you know, we're bringing in injured men, women, and children and, and, and so on. By the time we left, the violence had just really radically gone down and that kind of continued. So it felt very much like, like I joined out of a sense of like moral purpose. The war's not going well. There's a lot of violence, but we want to make it better. And then I went over with a unit that made it better. Right. And so I was justified and the world seemed like a more sort of intelligible and controllable place, right? There was a strategy, it sort of understood the, the failures of the previous strategy and was put into effect with moral purpose and we achieved what we wanted, right? And that was a sort of 
very kind of self-satisfied narrative that that didn't leave me seeking anything outside of it. I mean, there's different types of religious faith, but I think the the ones that appeal to me are the ones that are most attuned to the broken places in people, the desires for something beyond, the possibilities for communion, the, the, the limitations of human will and the human intellect, that understand that the world is not a tameable place, that human beings are not tameable or controllable, that you can't sort of fit a single human soul, let alone a society, into a rigorous containable intellectual framework that sort of captures it. And so in in many ways, I think that sense of moral and political complacency that, that came from the time that I was overseas, part of what leached faith out of me during that time. And what what discoveries or experiences precipitated your rediscovery of the faith that you had lost? It was interrogating those experiences and then also what was continuing to happen, right? So in terms of the wars, people I knew were going over and what turned out to be a failed surge, going to very violent places and getting seriously injured or killed for no, for what would turn out to be no purpose, right? No achievable military purpose anyway. And at the same time, I was writing fiction right? And when you're writing fiction, you're trying to sort of dig into these experiences and these narratives, and you're, you're trying to make characters as concrete as possible, right? And so the kind of abstractions that you overlay on top of your own experiences, those give you thin fiction, right? And so you write a story and it feels thin, and then you make it better, by making the characters more real and complex and putting them under more pressure. And what that ends up doing is it sort of calls the abstractions into question. And so those two things, I think, were, were essential for me to start the path towards coming back. And it's funny, in, in my first book, there are stories that I don't think people would think of as religious stories necessarily. I mean, they're stories that I wrote once I'd started sort of returning to Mass, uh, Prayer in the Furnace being the most obvious one, which is written from the perspective of a priest. That is a very obviously religious story. But there are also stories in the book. Uh, there's a story called Bodies, which is about a mortuary affairs guy for whom the experience of processing the corpses of Marines has convinced him that human beings are nothing but matter. Right? And there's another story called um, In Vietnam They Had Horrors, which is really more about sexual violence than it is about war necessarily. And actually writing those stories were really important for me coming back to the faith because they were stories exploring a kind of lack, right? Characters living out a, a kind of vision of reality that wasn't just sort of wrong in some way, but missing something deep and important about human life and existence. So. So that explains why writing fiction has advantages uh, as an approach to one's experience of war. And you've had great success writing short stories and a 
uh, very well-received novel about war. Why now a collection of essays and journalism? What advantages does this approach have? What appeal does it have for you? you? You write somewhere in one of these essays, you quote Simone Weil and about how force turns people into things. And you say, numbers do the same thing. Numbers turn people into things. Casualty counts, statistics of all kinds by which we measure the success or failure of military operations. And the appeal of fiction is that you get beyond the numbers. The people who had been turned into things by the numbers are turned back into people by the significant details that fiction uses. What does this kind of writing, some of it polemical, some of it reporting, what, what appeal does it have to you? Yeah, it does something very different. I mean, with fiction, you're trying to get somebody to enter into an experience, right? And to imagine themselves inside the experience. An essay is more like to my mind anyway, inviting someone into a conversation with you, right? Where you're trying to argue these things out. Argument is more, is sort of more central, I think, to, to a lot of the essays anyway. And there are also reported pieces where it's more about what you were able to uncover or what you were able to get people from an often very quiet community, which is the community of Navy SEALs who are opposed to the commercialization of Navy SEALs, since SEALs as a whole are not necessarily quiet, but there's a community within them that, that really dislikes some of the people who have traded on the SEAL name. And I wrote a piece about Eric Crichton's the sort of disgraced governor of uh, Missouri, and his relationship with that community. It's about getting that information out and, and sort of being able to present this, this subculture and the arguments within it to the world because it seems pertinent to debates about martial imagery and the role of the military in American politics, right? But you know, some of the more personal essays, it's like, here's a set of experiences. And I do also try and utilize sort of fictional tools where I want people to imagine a scene, right? I'm often interested in stories primarily, but then you sort of think through what those stories seem to be telling, telling me and whether it's sort of things about American citizenship, our relationship to the kind of notion of a citizen soldier and what it means, whether it's experiences that my my chaplain had when he was ministering to dying things that have stayed with me or struck me that I feel like need to be put in conversation with other things. So I'll tell like the stories of two Iraqi interpreters, right? One of whom served with American troops, got a visa, became an American citizen, joined the military and went back to Iraq as a soldier. Another one who served with Marines, but served at a later point in the war and was, was sort of stuck with the kind of broken American immigration system in a time of kind of rising xenophobia where his life and his family's life was at risk because of his service with Americans, but he was just in a kind of legal limbo. And I take that bit of, I guess, journalism, but I have as a counterpoint, a story from American history from World War I and the sort of great hero of World War I, Charles White Whittlesey, who was the commanding officer of the Lost Battalion and his unit was actually composed of a lot of immigrants, right? And that was something that was very important to him personally, but that was not necessarily important to the people who were upholding him as a hero. And it wasn't necessarily important to those who were sort of deifying American soldiers in the wake of World War I during a time of rising racism and xenophobia. And I tell the story of the, the internment of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which Whittlesey 
was present at. And then he very soon afterwards committed suicide. Right. And sort of thinking through that story from history and these two stories from the present day and what they might tell us about American identity. And it's asking, asking the reader to come along with me, consider these things that, that strike me as narratives that, that tell us something very deeply about who we are and what our country is and what's currently under dispute, right, politically, so that we can sort of think through where to go from here. We'll get back to Matt's conversation with Phil Cly in a moment. Is the Spirit leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, continue to deepen your faith journey and discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST's courses and lectures dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought, integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. The Franciscan School of Theology offers three on-campus degrees, the Master of Theological Studies, Master of Divinity, and Master of Arts, and an online degree, the Master of Theology Franciscan Theology degree. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Find true and perfect joy. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. One important theme in your book is the sense of alienation that many veterans feel from civilian life after they return from service. You write about being in New York on leave and visiting the area around the Flatiron Building, and it's a memorable passage, and I thought I'd have you read that, that passage here. Sure. So this is when I'm home on leave, and uh, I'd seen Marie die in a combat hospital, right, on Camp Picotum like a, a week before I went home. The only time I had anything even remotely resembling a flashback had to do with that Marine. I was given two weeks leave midway through my deployment, and I went home to New York. At one point, I walked down Madison Avenue, near where it intersects with Broadway. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining off the Flatiron Building. Men and women were passing by in summer clothes, and I was seized without warning by the urge to weep. The images came back not as photographs, but as living memories. And for that moment, Madison Avenue seemed just a fiction, one that was lovely but spun so thin I could see through it to the desert where that Marine fought and died. So that's one major theme, and it comes up again and again uh, throughout this book, the, the sense of alienation, the difficulty of readjusting to ordinary life after military experience, even if you didn't face combat, as, as you didn't. So the experiences of war are in some deep way incommensurate with other kinds of experience and hard to convey to those who, who haven't had them. But there's another important theme in your book, which is in some tension with that. And that's that while the experiences may be incommensurable, the moral responsibility for war is shared. It doesn't belong only to soldiers. It doesn't belong only to the elected officials who make the decisions about it belongs in a democracy to, to all the citizens who elect those leaders and on behalf of whom those soldiers fight. Could you say something about how these two themes relate in the pages of this book, but also in your own thinking about American foreign policy today? 
Yeah. So there is a kind of notion that like more experience is incommunicable. You can't, wouldn't know you weren't there kind of thing. And I don't like that idea. Certainly difficult. I think the experience of coming home from war is often alienating and strange. And not just because of, I mean, I think we normally think it's because of trauma. And I don't think that's it or that's simply it, right? While you're in the core, you're part of this very tight organization. You have a mission, you have a role, you have an identity that is given to you. You have a, a history that means something. I mean, even if you're the guy who's like, screw the core, like that's a guy, like that's an identity. You've been that kind of Marine. And, and so when you go home, it's not just that you're among civilians who might not necessarily understand some aspect of the war experience, but that you lose that whole community, right? And that sort of system that sort of generates meaning for you, whether you accept sort of official meaning given to you by the Marine Corps, or you sort of form yourself in, in, in some kind of opposition to it. And instead, you need to reform that community in, in, in civilian life, right? And so this is, I mean, this is like an old story, right? Odysseus comes back and, and doesn't recognize Ithaca and only his dog recognizes him, right? But the war experience, in terms of what it means, I think that is something that, that people work out over time in conversation, right? It's not like you have an experience of great intensity and what it means, right? And sort of this incommunicable thing that you understand. No, it's an event of importance in your life that has a moral significance that's related to your sense of identity, to, to pride, maybe to fear, to gain, sh uh, guilt, shame, whatever. And its meaning will change as you live, right? And as you become a different person, right? And that's like any deeply important experience. It's what fatherhood is like, right? And so how do you come to understand yourself and come to develop a sort of narrative of your own life in relationship to what you've been through conversation with other people, right? And so that's deeply important. And it's deeply important for the veteran on that regard. But I think also it's important for the society as a whole in order for people to sort of feel that they have a purchase on those experiences, right? Even if they were not involved. And the other thing is, in terms of American foreign policy, American elected officials over the past two decades have made a series of political and military decisions that have resulted in sort of increasingly walling off a sense of responsibility and ownership of the wars or even information about the wars from civilians, right? So there's a, a, a variety of things. We're still operating under the authorization for the use of military force that was passed in 2001. Famously, it was expanded by Barack Obama to include ISIS, right? Because he had famously ended the war in Iraq and he didn't want to go and get a new authorization from Congress and make it a political issue since it was something that would have been contentious within his own political allies, but also because he very much from the beginning of his presidency had a sort of theory of presidential power. And you can see this in Lena Kagan has statements saying as much in, in as early as 2009. I've written about this in the pages of Commonwealth, actually, that it's a global battlefield and the president has the ability to, to operate as such. And so you don't have congressional debate. You have expanded war using increasingly drone strikes, 
special operations troops and airstrikes, right? And also assistance to local forces. And that kind of playbook means that we can be involved in a lot of places without it really becoming a political issue unless somebody dies, right? So as happened during the Trump presidency, soldiers are killed in Niger. And there's, you know, like a senator who says, I didn't even know we had troops in Niger, right? And that's a wild situation to be in. And so the American elected officials have not been asked to put their names down on military policy, right? For or against. And information about what we're doing, where we're killing people, is not particularly forthcoming. We're not really allowing journalists to embed with the troops out in the field. And so how we find out about these things is very limited. And support for the war is that presidents don't have to actually generate support for the war. They don't have to make a case before the American public about what we're doing and why. And there's a variety of, of effects for that that I think are not great, even from a sort of military standpoint, right? And I have a long essay in, in the book talking about why that might be the case. But also, I think in terms of the average citizen and their sense of, of ownership and responsibility for American war making and, their, and thus concurrently their relationship to the veterans in their midst, that causes problems there as well, right? If you're an American taxpayer, a good amount of your, your tax money is going towards the Department of Defense, right? And yet, we really don't think about it that much. And there's a variety of reasons for that, but one of them is because political leaders do everything they can to make us not think about it, right? And sometimes being actively deceitful. Can you tell the story, which you mentioned once or t more than once in the book, but it, it's a good story, and you tell it in different ways to different purposes of having the opportunity to ask then-candidate Trump about his plan for, for foreign policy and what he would do differently from Obama. This was at some kind of candidate forum, right? Oh, my God, yeah. I, um, there was an event at the Intrepid where Trump and, and Clinton were brought in and veterans were given the opportunity to ask them questions. So I was selected to ask a question of them candidate Trump. And my question was basically like, we spent a lot of blood and treasure sending troops, take regions, we leave. Those are taken back by our enemies, and then we go back and fight again. So Trump had declared he had a plan to defeat ISIS. And I said, assuming that's true, and we defeat them, what is your plan for the aftermath for the region to ensure that they don't just rise up again? And he gave a kind of long rambling answer where he attacked uh, Obama for having pulled troops out of Iraq. And then at the end, he said, we should take the oil, right? Which was, I mean, I wasn't expecting a great response, but it was a particularly bad response. Was this the first time he had said that? Uh, yeah. 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 So yeah. Your, your question elicited a now infamous response. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, wouldn't be the last time he said it, unfortunately. Yeah. And... I mean, it was one of those things where it was just sort of, it just revealed the, the utter shallowness of our political discussion about war. I mean, I don't think he really took a hit for it. Obviously, he still won the presidency. And I also talk in the book about a veteran who was voting for Trump, 
precisely because of military policy in, in the prologue, right? And part of it was because Hillary Clinton was a sort of liberal hawk, right? And he associated her, I mean, rightly associated her with policies that had you know, wrought a tremendous amount of destruction. And so he, he figured he'd, he'd take a chance on, on Trump, whose, whose instincts were more isolationist. But part of it that was so wrong, right? I mean, there's, there's a whole reason. You can't just take the oil, right? Like, like you're running a heist and you just, you know, run off with all the oil reserves. It's not really a, a thing that's possible. So it's, it's silly on that regard. But it's also, there's this sort of thing where what is, what is the American role in in the world. And I think there's been plenty of criticism of the gap between America's professed idealism and its actions, all of which, which is well and good. But even if we're hypocritical, I still sort of value the hypocrisy, value the idea that we, we might have political leaders who think that America ought represent something with moral purpose in the world, the standard that we can fall away from even if that sense of ourselves sometimes sort of metastasizes into this kind of like messianic and dangerous sort of militarized <laughs> messianic. Nevertheless, like if you give up on this and just sort of see the world in, in purely mercantile terms, that is a very ugly and dangerous thing, right? I think that the ideals are still very operative, right? I think realism has taken any number of blows during Ukraine. Right. But I think one of, one of the things that's important is that the support that Ukraine has got has received around the world, which is translated into extremely real and extremely lethal aid, can't be disentangled from people's sense about international law, wars of aggression, standards of, of conduct of nations when they pursue their interest that are not, are, are something relatively new in, in the history of the world and something that were the very conscious creation of anti-war movements in the 19th and 20th centuries, right? And so it's very easy to look at the tremendous moral failings during that time, but I think it's also important to, to commit oneself to those kind of ideals. And that was a comment I was with many comments of Trump where I was, I'm just going to tell it like it is. We're not even going to pretend that there's anything even remotely moral that should guide our actions. And I find that very dangerous, right? Though again, there's the Marine that I know who found Hillary Clinton's very idealistically driven sort of liberal hawk instincts as tremendously dangerous as well. Finally, uh, a question about the people who fight our wars and the perception of them that many Americans have as people, our soldiers and our all-volunteer army are people without options or they wouldn't be there. You tell the story of somebody asking you why you would be joining the military. Uh, why would you do that? You have options because you had gone to Dartmouth. You weren't poor. You weren't from Appalachia or one of the parts of the country that we associate with military service now. You point out that in point of fact, the middle class is overrepresented in the military. It isn't just the poor who go there because they have no other options or because they need access to higher education and can't get it some uh, otherwise. So I guess my question 
is about how this distorted sense of who our soldiers are and what motivates them to join the military in the first instance, how that distorts our sense of their moral agency, but also ours in letting them fight on our behalf. Yeah. I mean, so the narrative doesn't come from nowhere, right? I mean, so Vietnam, very famously, if you were wealthier, there are ways to get out of the draft, right? If you had connections, you could you could find a way to not have to go to Vietnam. You get deferments for a variety of reasons. You can get a spot in the National Guard, right? Where you were technically, you know, where you're joining the military, but they, you knew that they weren't going to get deployed, so you'd be fine. And so there was a way where that that related to something where there was a real sort of socioeconomic component of, of how, you know, who was able to avoid the draft during, during Vietnam. In the modern era, though, it doesn't really fit. And I think in some way it is, I think it's comforting to people who are trying to, to wrap their heads around the notion of their sort of strident opposition to the war and the knowledge that like, we can't do Vietnam again. Right. Sort of, I think as a culture, we've learned that the sort of difficult reception that Vietnam veterans got returning home, that was a sort of moral wrong. Right. And that I think has been internalized even by a lot of strident critics of the Iraq war. And in a way, I think one of the appeals of the poverty draft is that it sort of allows you to. And the poverty draft is, is just this, this there, notion there. that like they don't have any other options. So they have to go up in, into the military. It allows you to avoid questions of agency. Right. Which, you know, which I sort of rebel against. Right. I, I think that it is morally significant if you join the military in a time of war. And in, in the last essay of the book, <laughs> I quote a veteran, Jacob Siegel, who basically he comes at it from the other direction where he says, like, even now I have this difficulty with people our age who didn't join the military. Right. Because, yeah, I know it's a volunteer army, but the volunteer army is a trick question. If, if you have any honor, you say yes, right? Which is something that made a lot of people mad when that essay was was published in in the New Yorker. But the, I think it is it's a moral decision and and should be evaluated as such. I think it's complicated, right? And I think that there's this sort of trying to remove all agency from veterans, right, by turning them purely into kind of victims of circumstance and sociology right? Which is ultimately patronizing. And but there's also sort of using them as a kind of scapegoat for where you sort of load the national sins on the veteran, right? Which I think is, I think is uh, morally untenable as well. Thank you again, Phil. Thank you. Phil Clyde's new book is Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless War from Penguin Press. You can also read Phil's most recent piece for Commonweal, A Whip of Chords, which analyzes Christian justification for violence in our May issue and on our website. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>